So, um, tell me, were there ever any good old days? Were there any ever, ever any good old days? What do you think? Yesterday, my uh, daughter took me out as part of a belated Christmas present, and we did the, the pirate exhibit at the Manitoba Museum. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, Esther and I like to read things at the same time. So, you know, uh, we went through it at about the, the same speed. But, and then we went for a quick tour through the, uh, you know, the general exhibit at the museum, and that was kind of fun. But on the way back, I, I said to her, Do you know, I don't think there were ever any good old days. There were just old days. We can get nostalgic about the past, and that's easy uh, to think about that, but when you look at uh, the changes in society, some of them have been for the better, maybe not all of them, but I don't know if there ever were any good old days. There were just old days, and what we look forward to are new days, different challenges. And the reason I started off talking about this this way is that it's very easy for Christians to get idealistic about the early days of the church in the book of Acts. And it was very exciting because God was breaking in our humanity, doing a new thing, pulling together a diverse community from all kinds of different ethnic groups. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, was promising to dwell inside people, with people. We've been, I don't apologize for the fact, I've just been beating that to death for the past several months because following Jesus is all about a life with God, not some theoretical abstract deity, but God with us, okay? And if God is with us, that should be a, a game changer, Life should look totally different. And it did. In the book of Acts, it's very exciting. It's the Acts of the Apostles and all the other Christians. That's why they call it the book of Acts. And the book of Acts implies they were doing something. They literally got off their donkeys and they did something. And God was doing something in them. And that was a good thing. Last week, we started to tackle this challenging issue of racism. And we talked about how Jesus used an example of someone from a despised minority showing mercy to a mainline Jewish citizen. And he used that example to challenge the, the bias and the prejudice of his own particular faith community at the time. It really offended the ruling elite to think that a despised Samaritan would actually stop and help a wounded Jew who had been mugged and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. But Jesus was trying to get the point across that of how to, what it looks like to love our neighbor. It's not just about loving God, but loving our neighbor. Well, this all sounds very good in theory, and it's all motherhood and apple pie, until we enter into a messy life of community and living with each other. So now we're going to take a look at the good old days of the early church. And I'm going to read you a true story of what happened. And as we go through, we're going to stop and just see what little tidbits, what kind of things does God want us to learn and apply out of this story. Because everything in the Bible is there for our benefit, for our instruction. I don't know if you realize it or not, but last week I was reading you stuff out of the book of Leviticus. 
which is riveting bedtime reading if you struggle with, um, not with narcolepsy, maybe with insomnia. But anyway, but all of God's word is there for a reason for us to apply and to challenge us and to change us from the inside out so we can learn something from this story today, I trust. The church in its history has not always handled the issues of ethnic diversity and racism well. It's easy for us as Canadians to look at the church in the United States and think, oh, slavery, that was awful. Slavery was illegal in Canada a long time before it was in the States. How awful. And then we turn a blind eye to what's happened with the residential schools in our country. That's an ugly part of our past. Ugly. And I'm not here to shame people or make us feel guilty or, or wallow, especially in what they call white guilt, but let's call a spade a spade, okay? We have known racism and injustice in our country, and sometimes the church has been an accomplice to that. Sometimes it stood against it, which is good. We need to remember both those things. But whenever the church gets co-opted and, and dragged into the power systems of the country, it generally does not go well. Because all of a sudden, we buy into that privilege and power structure and we lose our ability to have that prophetic edge to our voice. We become part of the establishment instead of God's counterculture, God's, king, God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. So keep that in mind. We're going to go through this story and see what God has got to show to us this morning. A little bit of background. So the, in the book of Acts... God's Holy Spirit comes to a bunch of uh, early followers of Jesus who are just praying like crazy together. For about 40 days, they're praying and saying, you know, Jesus has just left. We know Holy Spirit's going to come. We know something. Did I just cut off? We know uh, something amazing is going to come. Thanks, Kurt. Kurt's filling in today. Thank, thank you. Um, so we know something amazing is going to come. The promise of the Holy Spirit. God with us all the time, which is amazing. And it just so happened, this is not a coincidence, this was a God incident. It just so happened that there were devout, God-fearing Jews from all over the known world in Jerusalem at that time. Holy Spirit hits people here, uh, these, these crazy praying Jews, praising God in all kinds of different languages. They said, what's going on? Are you guys drunk? Well, actually, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's a little early to be hitting the, hitting the bottle. It's, it's Holy Spirit. It's God giving us the ability to praise from all these different languages. People are just drawn and attracted. And, and Peter preaches this amazing, spontaneous sermon explaining what's going on. And about 3,000 people that day said, all right, we're going to start following this Jesus too. We are in. And then after that, the church grew and grew and grew. It was exponential growth. There was a lot of government pressure. There was a lot of persecution. People started getting thrown in jail and oppressed. They would pray. Uh, some of them got sprung out of the jail. Some of them didn't. <laughs> but God was there in their midst. And the church was growing rapidly. This was a good thing, but it caused some problems. And here's where we pick up the story. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Uh-oh, what happened to the good old days? Rumblings of discontent. 
Here's the deal. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Church growth brings problems. They're good problems, but they're problems. So what was the problem here? Most of the new converts in the church were Hebrew-speaking Jews who had, had grown up speaking, well, technically they'd be speaking Aramaic. And there was a, a daily food distribution system that operated through the temple. But after people started following Jesus, the temple authorities weren't so crazy about this and they shut down, they excluded the, the Aramaic-speaking um, Christians, the Hebrew-speaking Christians. So the Christians set up their own system, their own, call it a social welfare system, Okay. You think that social welfare system started with the government? It started with the church back in the book of Acts. People just sharing what they had, um, looking after each other, uh, liquidating their possessions as needed and giving the money to the church to, to make sure that people who were living on the edge didn't starve, didn't suffer. Okay, they were just sharing everything for the common good. That's what we do here on Sundays, right? So that was going well, but there was a problem in that all these newer Christians who didn't have, I think, all the social networks or just weren't known, somehow they were being left out. I don't know or not sure if it was a deliberate oversight. I don't think so. But sometimes when a church grows rapidly, it's easy for people to get left out of the loop. And you're going, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're helping so-and-so. And Imagine the, the problem is compounded if we're not all speaking the same language, literally, and people speak differently and look differently. There's a natural suspicion and lack of communication, and things were just breaking down. So this is a serious problem because these widows, these people who are suffering, were being discriminated against. Now, whether this was deliberate or not, it was a problem. It was an issue. And at that point, it could have split the church. It easily could have split the church. Because the Greek-speaking Christians could have said, wow, those lousy Hebrew-speaking Christians, they don't, they don't follow what they believe. They're not following Jesus. They, you know, my, my aunt got left out. Like, she went to the food bank and there wasn't anything for her. They said they didn't know her. Like, she wasn't on the list. That's not fair. And all these rumblings start. And there's discontent. So that was the issue. It was, a, it was a, a fairness issue. It was a justice issue. And it was based on uh, a difference in ethnicity and a lack of understanding between two ethnic groups. So what do they do? So the 12, the, the, the leaders, the leadership, the apostles, called the meeting of all the believers. Don't you love those congregational meetings? It must have been a big crowd. It was a big crowd because they numbered in the thousands by then. And here's what they said. We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So they had a community meeting. And uh, it's interesting what they, what they came up with. How did the leadership, 
How did the leadership solve this problem? First of all, they were proactive. They didn't ignore it. I really want to highlight again, <laughs> they were proactive. They did not ignore it. They didn't sweep the conflict under the rug. They didn't say, oh, there's just a few of those, oh, those Greeks, you know, they're always complaining. You know, those Greek-speaking Christians, they're such an issue, they're such a problem. It's those people. Remember last week, I talked about at the heart of racism is the way we look at those people, whoever those people are. Obviously not people that look like us, you know, the best, whatever the best is. But they're just, they're not our people, they're those people. It would have been easy and perhaps tempting for the leadership of the, of the church at the time to say, oh, it's just those people, the noisy minority complaining and just ignoring or, or just label them as a problem. But they did not. I think they were cut to the heart. They said, this isn't, this isn't what we're about. If people are getting left out and discriminated against, even if there's a rumor of this, even if it appears this way, we need to deal with this. So they got together, they gathered together, and they, they consulted. And it's interesting, um, if you see what, how they handled this, they said they were clear in their priorities. The, the leadership said, look, we've been commissioned by Jesus, okay? We've got a job description that Jesus has told us to do, and we need to stick to it. We're supposed to be teaching people the word of God, not running a food program. Is there anything wrong about running a food program? What's more spiritual, teaching the word of God or running a food program? Yes, is the answer, in case you were wondering. What's more spiritual, teaching the word of God or running a food program? Yes. Okay? I'm assuming we're all on the same page on that. And if not, let's have a discussion in the parking lot. No, no, in the foyer, okay? It's too cold to talk in the parking lot. I think God values both equally, right? church through its history for some strange reason has always think well we should be doing te just teaching the word or just feeding the poor I mean Jesus did both so we do both okay doesn't have to be one or the other but the apostle said look we need to stay on this we need to stay on on target with what God is telling us to do but this is really important so we're going to set up we're going to set up a system we're going to change um, the structure of how we do things so that we can serve people better. As a church grows, as any organization grows and changes, it needs to adapt and it needs to change. That's one of the, the, the challenges we're facing here at Elam Chapel. Our elders are overwhelmed. They're good people, but they're overwhelmed because right now they're, they're, they're kind of in the situation that, that these apostles were here. They're kind of overwhelmed with um, the, the spiritual care of the congregation as well as some of the administrative details. Now, that administrative details and the organizing, they're really important. And they're not any less spiritual than teaching the Word. But you just can't do both. It's not reasonable, it's unfair, and it's unkind to expect people to do that. 
So in case you're grumbling and frustrated with the elders, pray for them because one of the things we're working on is how do we recruit another group of leaders and empower them, by the way, to carry on the other practical ministries of the church. Okay? Are you tracking with me? Just nod, grunt. The occasional amen would not freak me out. Okay? All right. I'm not trying to change your dispositions. I know we're Canadian, and we don't get excited except at hockey games, but it's okay. And maybe church structure doesn't set your heart on fire. I can relate to that. But it's all about serving people. It's about extending the kingdom of God, right? So what kind of people were they looking for? What kind of people were they looking for? Just, just by the way, they, they dealt with this problem very shrewdly and wisely. They were proactive. They said, we need to do something about this issue. They didn't sweep it under the rug, like sadly the Canadian church did for decades until we started the rec reconciliation process with the Aboriginal peoples here in this country. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They admitted there was a problem. said, let's deal with it. And they listened to people. They weren't top-heavy. They were servant leaders. They listened. Okay? And what did they do? They empowered new leaders. Now, by the way, who were they looking for? This is interesting. They said, okay, appoint seven people. Everyone loved this idea, which isn't doesn't always happen. That's why I could tell it was the good old days because you came out of a church meeting and everyone liked the idea. I mean, I'm just teasing you. I, that always happens here. And they chose the following. Stephen, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He didn't last too long in the book of Acts, but it was good. It was a good beginning. Uh, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch. I'm just making up the pronunciation, okay, in case you're wondering. An earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So we had a new team, a new servant leadership team appointed in the church to do what? To look after the food distribution, okay? They were running the food bank at the Jerusalem, at First Jerusalem Church, or whatever they call themselves, Okay. So who were the seven? Interesting qualifications. They were well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. So they had a proven track record. They were reliable people, okay? They weren't just agitators. They weren't just people, you know, trying to make attention for them, trying to make a name for themselves, or squeaky wheels. They were proven, reliable people of good character. By the way, what was their ethnicity? You can't tell necessarily off the top of your head. But most commentators note these are Greek names. These are Greek names. They're not Hebrew names. So what they did, what the congregation did, this minority group was being discriminated against and the majority group said, hey, you know what? All right, let's work together for this problem. It wasn't top-down we will fix you. Oh, you poor, despised minority. We know what's best for you, and we will tell you what to do. No. What the group did, they said, do you know what? This is wrong. This oversight is a sin against God. It's an offense. It's wrong. With God's help, we're going to fix it. We're going to work together to fix it. And they chose seven well-qualified leaders 
from the minority group to say, okay, you are now empowered as leaders to serve the congregation in this way. See how wise this was? It wasn't a bunch of people from the well-meaning people, well-intentioned people from the majority group saying, oh, we know what's best for you, poor, oppressed people. We know what's best for you. No. They come alongside, they pray, and they consult together, and they pick seven people. Now, this was not um, just a, oh, what do you call it? Affirmative action, okay? They weren't just looking for people to fill a slot. Oh, we need so many people of X ethnic group on the church board to make sure we're all represented. No, they looked for people who were full of faith in the Holy Spirit and had a good track record. Okay, they were reliable people. But they were also from the minority group, which I think was brilliant because what does that do? It instantly builds trust and credibility. If these Greek-speaking widows have been overlooked before in the distribution, they know that so-and-so who could relate to them was going to look after them. Right? They knew that there was fairness built into the system. It was very shrewd, very wise. And again, I can't emphasize the fact that they chose people of good character and a track record. That's what we need. There is a temptation in the church out of desperation. We want to get warm bodies into a leadership role, and that just ends in disaster for everybody, unfortunately. But I think the church, as they developed leaders as they intentionally poured their lives into people and saw the potential in people and invested in them, they raised up, so to speak, a, a farm system where they could raise up potential leaders. And these people were ready. They were faithful, available, and teachable. What I call fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. Okay? I don't look at me and just think, oh, that's why Rick's a pastor. No, no. We're looking for fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. And that's what these folks were. What happened? God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. That's pretty cool. I think that made the temple leaders just grit their teeth. Because all of a sudden, I, I just love it. Because they just put that little, I don't know, maybe they just wanted to, to tweak the Jewish leadership at the time. You know what? A lot of the Jewish priests were converted to. That really was a sign that God was working with them powerfully. So what happened? There was a healthier structure in the church. Okay, The leadership wasn't overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day operations of the church. The day-to-day -day operations of the church are really important. If there's no one to let you in the door, if there's no one to make sure that the utility bills are being paid, if there's nobody to answer the phone, things fall apart. A lot of people have to do a lot of work behind the scenes so something like this can happen today. And this pulpit thing is not the most important thing that happens at Elam Chapel. It's not. We're all in this together. And the sooner we see that, the better. Everybody's got their role to play. But healthier structures, it structures us for growth, right? Right? So there's not this bottleneck and a few people 
are not overwhelmed. You might think, oh, there's the people at the top. Well, I don't think they feel like they're at the top. I think they, sometimes they feel like they're at the bottom all the time and all this weight is on them. So the, the pressure and the decisions need to be um, spread out. And the people that they appointed were empowered. They said they prayed for them, laid hands on it, saying, you guys are in charge of the food program. We will not micromanage you. We will not tell you how to do it. We will not come back in three months and saying, you're doing this, that, and this all wrong. There was accountability, but they didn't micromanage them. You understand? Because if you recruit somebody for a task, you say, you give them the tools to do it and say, okay, God bless you. Go do it. Okay? Check back if you get into trouble. But basically, oh, ideally, don't get into trouble. But just go and do it in the name of Jesus. Okay? So a healthy structure makes for healthier relationships. And what happens? More growth. To the point that even Jewish priests are getting saved and following Jesus, which is amazing. And I think, you know what happened after that? Probably more problems. And, I, and in fact, if you read the book of Acts, more problems came up. But, you know, the church worked at resolving these things. Some of the ethnic problems that, that came about, there, there's always this tension in the early church between uh, folks who had grown up with a devout Jewish background and folks who had come in from a Gentile background and they were trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus? Do we, do we still keep all the Jewish commandments from the Old Testament because they're near and dear to our heart? But then these people look differently and they speak differently and they act differently. How do we follow Jesus? How do we mesh those cultures? The church was always wrestling with those issues. Always wrestling. And nothing is new in that way. So in that sense, there's no good old days. But that's all right. God, through his Holy Spirit, will help us and guide us. And it's really important for God's church, God's kingdom on earth, to model to the rest of society, especially how different people from different ethnic backgrounds not just get along, not just tolerate each other, but actually love each other. Because that's what was going on in the book of Acts. These people were loving each other. They were serving each other. They were sacrificing for each other. That just proved magnetic for other people. They were a little weird. I'm not justifying your eccentricities or character challenges, but they were a little odd, but they were drawn to them because they... How can, you, how can you people, you barely speak each other's language. How can you love and serve each other and sacrifice? Why are you selling, why are you liquidating your real estate assets and making sure that people from some other ethnic group are take, being taken care of? You're not even related to them by blood. You know? When we were kids, we didn't even grow up talking to those people. And now you're, you're eating meals with them? You're sharing, you're sacrificing for them? What the dickens is going on? What's going on with you people? That's what's magnetic about the kingdom of God. That's, what's, that's what is so attractive. Because you know it's got to be God when such a crowd of diverse people, diverse personalities, diverse backgrounds grow together into something beautiful and dynamic and life-changing. That is so cool. I want to read again the uh, passage that was so well, well read this morning. 
as people learn to trust each other regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, um, the church grows. Now, it wasn't the end of racism in the church, but it was a godly example of how to deal with it. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. This was radical. We don't understand how radical this was unless you were a first century Christian. There's no longer this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Okay? There's no longer slave nor free. The social distinctions are all gone. The social classes, the, the barriers between social classes, they are officially abolished in Jesus. There is no pecking order, okay, in the kingdom of God. That's gone. There's no male and female. It doesn't mean our gender differences disappear. We celebrate viva difference. That's what I say about gender differences. But it means that there's no pecking order. Men are not superior to women inherently and all that sexist garbage. All that's gone. All that's gone. As far as the, the, the old systems we use to raid each other, you know, like even to the point of what part of town do you come from? What high school did you go to? What do you drive? Where do you work? Do you work? Do you have a job? All these things, they don't matter. They're not important. We make them out to be life and death. People are so much like dogs. We're very sophisticated, but we're always sniffing each other out, say, hmm, where are you in the pecking order, right? Dogs are a little more blatant about this, but people do it in our subtle ways. Right after we get someone's name, we usually ask them, and what do you do? Not who are you, or who are you in Jesus, or how has Jesus changed your life, or what, you know, it's like, what do you do? And we do that because we unconsciously want to slot them somewhere, you know? But there's none of that. There's none of that in the kingdom of God. We don't, we don't raid each other on outside stuff, which is scary and beautiful at the same time. Because all of a sudden, all our old criteria for evaluating people has disappeared. And we see people that are, yeah, we're all broken. We've all got our stuff, but Jesus is putting us back together again. And he's in the process of transforming us. He's in the process of transforming this community right here to be a place of healing and light and mission and just really good stuff in the city of Winnipeg and around the world. You know, beyond the perimeter. Wouldn't that be cool to think about the influence of Elam Chapel within the perimeter and beyond the perimeter? That's the business we're in. That's really powerful. You may not take a look around, look at each other for a minute. Okay? You would not believe the potential in this room. And I'm not saying it as some rah-rah motivational speaker. 
You know, for those of you who are still awake at this point in the sermon, you know I tend not to be a rah-rah motivational speaker, all right? It won't be hype, but I'm telling you the truth, okay? I'm speaking the truth to you. There is a ton of potential in this room. Why? Because God is with us. Not because we're highly qualified or especially good-looking. Okay, well, maybe Doug is good-looking, but the rest of us are kind of all right. Anyway, but, but you understand what I'm saying? We're, we're just regular folks. But what with God with us, we are world changers, game changers. And that's what's going to change Winnipeg. That's what's going to change Canada and the world. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of allowing us to gather in a room full of world changers today. Please forgive us for judging other people on their appearances. Please forgive us for our sin of trying to make ourselves better than other people. That is garbage. We repent of that. Father, I pray that Elam Chapel will be able to rejoice in its diversity and unity and that you would make us a witness to the city of Winnipeg the country of Canada and to the world how different people from different backgrounds can love you and love each other. We're putting a stake in the ground today. Today, Lord, that you would help us to ban racism from our gathering, that you'd help us to love and respect people from different ethnicities so that they're empowered to serve and to bless the world. We pray these things confidently in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.